Attention lovers of mysteries, I certainly count myself as one. In recent years, I've become flat-out addicted to British and Scottish mystery novels, movies, and TV shows. And the natural extension of those is a game that allows me to experience the mystery instead of just reading it or watching it. Don your own detective hat in June's Journey, a free, hidden-object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. It's set in the glitz and glamour of the Roaring Twenties, and you play as June, deciphering clues and uncovering secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. New chapters are added to the game each week, and you can personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. Download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the final episode of Infamous America Season 1, Salem. For this interview... I met with Elizabeth Peterson, the director of the Witch House and Pioneer Village in Salem. The Witch House is a great piece of living history that has been preserved and restored to give us insight into numerous facets of the Salem Witch Trials. The house was the home of magistrate and judge Jonathan Corwin, and it's full of exhibits that illuminate life in Salem in 1692, and also give us a glimpse behind the curtain of the Witch Trials. I talked to Elizabeth about Judge Corwin and his home, the trials from a judge's point of view, and, since it's in a city famous for hauntings, had she ever experienced anything strange or ghostly in the old house? Elizabeth was kind enough to meet me right before the house opened to the public, so near the end of the interview, you'll hear some sounds of the staff getting ready to open the doors to the throngs of visitors. Here's Elizabeth Peterson. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples, especially in the spring when the pollen from desert plants here in Arizona is off the charts. I get all the classic symptoms, coughing, sneezing, runny nose, itchy eyes, and a pressure buildup in my head. The works. Luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. The double-action combination of prescription-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Elizabeth, thank you for being on the show. We very much appreciate it, especially at this incredibly busy time of year. We know that October is almost here when people start hearing this. It will have, October will have passed. So your busy season is just about to strike. People from all over the world are going to descend on Salem and Judge Corwin's house. And so you guys are very busy. Thank you very much for com- for being on the show. Absolutely. And so we, that's where we want to start, obviously. We want to start with the place that we're sitting in. We, specifically, where what what is the house that we're sitting in and what room are we sitting in right now? This is the 17th century home of uh, witchcraft trials judge Jonathan Corwin. He's very, very wealthy merchant, firstly, um, inherits one of the largest Puritan fortunes in, in the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony. So he's very, very much a, a son of privilege. Um, he becomes magistrate and then becomes judge on the special uh, court appointed for the witchcraft cases in Salem, Oyer and Terminer. Uh, as magistrate, he is receiving the accusations for the trials or for the witchcraft cases and he would have received any sort of you know accusations if someone in the community felt they had been criminally wronged this is where you would go you would seek out your your magistrate he's that first authority Mm -hmm. for anything to move forward and so either him or his brother-in-law Hawthorne who lived right down the street would be the two men that you would go to if you felt you had witnessed witchcraft had been affected by witchcraft in some way you would seek them out and make your complaint official from there, he would call a constable. From there, we do have a paper trail that we can sort of matrix together how these procedures went forward. Okay. Um, and so what we think happened here in the house, in this parlor, in the, in the first lower chamber, um, we think that at the most, those conversations, those early conversations, for years they had said, oh, this is where the trials happened. They okay. sort of gave the idea that it was one hanging judge. And, and that's wonderful for storytelling. It's very cinematic and, you know, and it captures the imagination, but it's just not the case. There are nine judges appointed. Four judges would have to be seated with the Chief Justice Stoughton in order for anything to move forward. So that's happening at the courthouse. We've right. lost that building. We've lost all those buildings. Right. So it's easy to say, oh, it all happened sure. here. But you know, with research over the decades, we've realized what is happening here is at the most, those accusations. People coming to him saying, here's my issue, here's my complaint. He might call other uh, authorities of the court together. They might have informal you know, meetings or conversations, but nothing official, no examinations are happening here, no trials happening here. But this is, you just kind of mentioned it, as, we, as, we, as we've been around Salem, we have heard that very few actual artifacts still remain from that time period. And it, you know, it might seem somewhat obvious that people wanted to get rid of anything that was associated with witchcraft from the, from the 1692 era. This is one, probably the biggest artifact that still stands. Right. It's, I'm sure it's been heavily renovated to get it back to kind of where it was, to, to make it look like it did at the time that Judge Corwin lived here. But how important is it to have this piece for people to come and see as the biggest living relic that still exists? I think exists? it's vital. I think it's absolutely vital to have this physical, massive artifact as a reminder and as, a, as an opportunity to interpret a very tragic episode and very misunderstood episode of our past. I think, sadly, I would have to say it's even more relevant, more important in today's world than it has been for quite some time. Sure. How our authority comes together and 
makes mistakes or you know responds to threats and fears right. erroneously or you know or even in, in in positive ways it's all very critical i think to understand this this portion of our past it's and to not sugarcoat it to understand you know the ugliness behind all of these decisions as best we can understand as best we can sort of you know un, um, investigate and, and bring scholarship to those beliefs and superstitions and, and reasons they made the decisions that they did. Right, yeah, the old classic quote of those who don't learn from the past are doomed to repeat it type of thing. We have to, you yeah. have to study, you have to learn from it so that you can hopefully not make the same mistakes in the Absolutely. future. Absolutely, I mean, because it's one of the panels that we have in the house, and I can show you that bef before you guys leave today, is you know, where do we see this happening in our world today? Where do we have a group perceiving another group as a threat? How do we marginalize? How do we push that threat away? And you can say that we see this symbolically in, in many ways. It's human nature to you know, protect those you love, and push right. those you fear. Um, but it's also even happening um, literally. You know, in, in certain third world countries, in Africa especially, children are being accused of witchcraft, yeah. being tortured, being killed. It's, it's absolutely devastating and hard to believe that all these centuries later, we're, we're still dealing with this in parts of the world and we're still ignoring it as well, and I think that's just as telling. Right, right. Um, and it, just as a kind of a quick fun one for you, as, <laughs> as we've been walking through here, this is a fantastic house. With the, the, the bits of it we've seen thus far, you can hear the floorboards creak. You were talking earlier before we yeah. turned on the, the microphones about uh, doors upstairs that have wonderful creaking sounds too. What's it like to actually come and work here every day and experience this? It's amazing. I'll, I'll tell you, I often walk in and your head is full of, of course, your day-to-days. Your you've got payroll, you've got sure. issues, you've got emails to, to answer. Um, you know, as Mandy can attest, more than probably anyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's very, it's sobering to, to come into here, into these rooms, and to realize how many lives were affected by conversations that took place in this house or between the adults in this home. Just lives changed within moments. Right. Or even the, the family, Jonathan and Elizabeth, as a couple, as parents, as authorities in this community, watching their, their neighbors turn and shift and change and relationships that have been developed over years and decades suddenly switching. You know, for example, uh, the contract there on the wall, that's between Jonathan and a local mason, Daniel Andrews. And Daniel will later be accused of witchcraft. Really? We think he does escape a bit, some say to, to Europe for a short time to sort of escape the, the pandemonium and comes back when it's safe. But it just shows, you know, at one time he's, he's being welcomed and yeah. he's being hired, and then suddenly things shift and change and relationships that you trusted are no longer trusted. I was about to say, yes, he was a, he was a trusted um, right. a person yeah. to one of the more prominent Absolutely. They were gussing up the house. He's yeah. asking him to, you know, put on Dutch tiling and sure. do the chimneys. And yeah, well, and speaking of chimneys, right behind you is the, obviously yeah. the listeners can't see it. Hopefully they will come and visit here at some point, but there is an enormous hearth that must be four feet high and, I don't know, six or seven feet wide. It's incredible to see this these is things. This is the hallmark of 17th century homes. Yeah. This is a monster yeah. at the center of the house, and it will open up into each of the rooms. And sure. that's sort of how we're building. It's funny to say, but chimneys are actually a newer technology. We, we don't think of it in, sure. in those yeah. terms today. But, I mean, even in this time period, there are still Elizabethan-era homes in England, um, a bit more out, you know, farmland, um, that would still have only an open smoke hole. 
They'd have an open fire. Wow. Right? Cooking over that open fire, smoke hole. So very tribal, like what you right, and I right. might think of as very tribal existence. They're still living that way. And it's lovely, it's efficient for cooking, for heating and everything, but you are inundated with smoke. You breathe it, you smell it, your clothing, your yeah, hair, right? Everywhere. Everything yes. is and so it's like being chimney in a campfire. comes along yeah. as a way to sort of pull that that smoke away, but we still have that concept of the hearth as being central. Yeah. That's life, that's heat, that's warmth, that's food. Without it, we might perish. And so we try to keep it in the center of the house. It isn't until like, as you walk around to these, yeah. these houses around Salem, you'll see within the next like 30, 40 years, they're like, okay, we've got it. We understand chimneys, we're gonna move it around. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, gonna have one on, on each cabin. side of the yeah. house. Exactly. So let's the, flank yeah. the house and push the heat in, you know, yeah. just, just for fun, let's see how that works. So yeah, it's, but it is a newer, it's still, we're, we're still sort of adhering to the old ways, the old beliefs, and with that, you know, superstitions and fears sure. as well. Well, just for the fun of it, since this, this whole area is, this is known as Witch City, there's all kinds of haunted aspects to it. Do you, when you turn the lights off here at night, do you ever get any little feelings or premonitions when you're <clears> walking <throat> through the place? A lot of us have had little things. I, w I will be honest, a lot of us have had little things happen, but I would have to say with everything I've had happen, it's never been predicated by a feeling of um, foreboding or anything okay. spooky. It, it will usually be that I've misinterpreted a sound or a sight as a coworker. Okay. I think someone's down here working. I think someone just came into the back door or something like that, and then I'll realize, There's okay, nobody there. Nobody's here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's not scary. It's more like, all right, you got me. You know? Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Well, let's 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 jump into the to the heart of it then. So let's if if we can let's kind of step back a little. We obviously I want to hear certainly much more about the magistrate side of things. I think that's a fascinating side of the story. But let's try to set up for the audience a little bit more. They will have heard all the narrative by the time we get to this interview. So they kind of understand a little bit about what Puritan life was like, what Puritan life would have been like for adolescent girls. But can you explain a little bit more about the the daily tasks and the grind and the monotony that would have existed for the girls who ended up starting this whole thing. Okay. Now it's a, I'll tell you from the perspective of the house, because it's a little bit of a mixed bag here for us at this house, because we have the unusual opportunity to interpret wealthy children, right. wealthy women, um, wealthy men's lives. And that isn't the usual, you know, yeah. Salem Village, that isn't really what we're yeah, discussing early on. Farm we have some, yeah, farmer community. And they're doing, they're doing well, Rebecca Nurse, every, you know, all those people are doing, are doing well, um, but not wealthy. Yeah like Corwin's here. So when we look at just overall, you know, the, the, the prospects of a young woman in uh, early Puritan America, it's fairly grim. I mean, overall. Right. I mean, you had, for, for Elizabeth here, her, her daughter, her first daughter being born, the only daughter who survives to adulthood. Right, which was a, a very common thing. To go off Mary yeah. is Elizabeth, and she sadly passes very quickly after childbirth. So she loses, Elizabeth, the senior, senior loses all of her, her children before her, except for Henry. But it, the, the prospects are you know, fairly grim. It's a fairly oppressive lifestyle, even if you have privilege. With privilege, you might get more of an opportunity to sort of push back on, on social expectation. You might be, well, all girls are, are taught to read, expected yeah. to be taught to read, you know, at a dame school. Um, and, and that's like one of the bright, fuzzy things you can say about early 
Puritanism is that, you know, our literacy rate was yeah, off the was charts. Yeah, it was huge. You had to be able to read the Bible. So. <laughs> yeah, not that it was like the warm, fuzzy right thing to do, but yeah. it was just because we can't have a weak link in the community. Yeah. You need to understand the word. Yeah. <laughs> um, so girls are generally taught to read, boys are taught to read, but that's where it sort of splits off. And then boys are expected to, to go off and write if they choose or to apprentice in their trade, and then girls are not expected to write just expected to sort of do decorative arts, keep to the home, mm -hmm. keep within their, their lane, so to speak, or their arena. Um, but with wealthier women, their daughters, you find a deviation from that. Elizabeth Sr. Um, is, writes lovely. She's very well-spoken. She communicates in her diaries and journals, and um, so she's very, very well-educated. I would imagine Elizabeth, her daughter is as well. We don't have uh, a record of you know where she's going to school, but so that's a, a bit of a difference from the girls at Salem Village. Okay. Um, and the lifestyle of many of those girls is they're taking part in a practice that we call sending out, and it's young girls, young children being sort of placed in other homes with other families about the age of 12 so that they aren't coddled, so that they learn to be respectful and, and um, productive. Um, and so you have okay. many of the girls who are accusing um, are occupying those roles, those spaces in those households. They aren't with their parents. Right. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. One thing that I, that I could add certainly to sort of help understand the mindset of a young Puritan girl is women aren't owning their own property by and large in this period. Now again, that's a bit of an anomaly here at the house where Elizabeth inherits from her mother. She inherits property from a mother who inherited property from straight from her father. So that's unusual. So I get to see sort of two sides of it here. But by and large, the young girl growing up in this colony is, is quick to identify herself with a suitor, the safety of a, of a man's family, um, so that she can have a roof over her head and, and, and be a part of you know the, the, that household. Um, we have lost a number of men to the uh, King Philip's yeah. War, the Indian skirmishes. We, we don't, I think, teach enough about that. I don't think as a whole we understand truly how impactful that was. But the population being so declined that these young women wouldn't necessarily think marriage is an automatic. Right. They, you know, they, they might have some trouble aligning themselves with the family, um, and this is where the fortune telling, right, the kind of tradition sort of comes, comes in, in that they were. This right. whole thing started because they exactly. were trying to see maybe who might be potential suitors down right. the road. Right, doing the egg in the glass where you yeah. take the the white of the egg and you yeah. let it sit, which we've actually done. We've okay, tested it. We're like, <laughs> how does that work? Um, you know, let it sit in the sun and see what shape it takes, and. Um, you know, Reverend Hale talks about that in his in his book, um, but as 
we've discussed, he doesn't say, though, this is how it all begins, this is what starts it all, um, or, or mention who is doing it, but he's saying this is happening. And there are, Sarah Cole is actually one of the, the young women, she lives just down the street, she's not one of the accusers from Single Village, but she's one who says, yes, of course we're doing it. I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure, being sure. slightly cheeky. Um, yes, we're doing it, everybody does it, you know, and, and the more I researched, I, I realized, oh, this is going on for centuries. Right. This is English, you know, folk magic. This is English, very um, sort of harmless. There's a book called Mother Bunch that's published early on in England where she's teaching young women and young men how to do these little things, and you can actually find that online. Oh, really? Yeah. So she's, I mean, down from, it gets spookier than the, the egg in the glass, but she actually even teaches you to do um, like a little witch cake with the flour and a bit of your own water, so urine, right? Right. But you bake it, and you can't speak while you bake it, um, and then you break it apart, and you sleep with a portion of it <laughs> under your pillow, and you're supposed to dream of the, the person you're going to marry. That's how it's going to work. Okay, yeah. And this is like the witch cake is one of the early traditions when it comes to is one of the first things you read when you start to really research right. the Salem witch trials. Was that a witch cake was was used in the early days to yeah. try to identify the witch? And I know that in the very first my very first readings when I were very scattered and I was trying to figure out how, what was happening, I read the basic idea behind the witch cake and I thought, well, how in the world does that identify a witch? And it takes a little bit to kind of figure out the process, right. but there's there's so many steps that you have to go through, and then somehow the witch will be magically revealed, and all right. these things had several steps, and then eventually you would figure out how to interpret it, and I thought, it, they're, yeah. they're all so complicated, yet somehow they're supposed to reveal this stuff. The witch cake I thought was going to be the, the largest fallacy when I first started um, researching. Uh, I thought, okay, this is made up. This is silly. Um, but it actually ends up being like the best documented piece of English folk magic, you know, everything about it down to Paris, Reverend Paris, um, discovering it's been done. Yes. Being furious about it being done. Yes. His response and making, uh, making her, Mary Sibley get in front of the congregation and publicly apologize, which she tearfully does, all of it recorded. And, wow. and it's in a lovely little vault over in Danvers right now in Richard Trask's uh, collection. And I just find that amazing. And so that really spurred me on to, to take a look at the folklore and the superstition and, and give it validity. Just assume a, a level of validity to it because these people were, you know, to not dismiss it. And I think that's something that a lot of American historians and scholars do is they sort of dismiss the magical side of it because coming from a modern perspective, well, we're far beyond that now, but I, I try to approach it with a sense of, well, these are the most educated people in our community. These are Harvard graduates. Some are Cambridge, Oxford graduates, and they don't question it. So that led me to some really amazing discoveries about you know, our educational system in the colonial period, um, and that we're alchemists, many of us, in this time period, and it just completely turned my concepts of you know, colonial Puritanism right on its ear. Yeah, yeah. as, as the <laughs> listeners will know, when we spoke to Professor Emerson Baker, he mentioned the same thing, that the, there was no questioning witchcraft at the time because yeah. everyone believed it. The most educated, the most prominent citizens right. all believed it. 
And they, to become an ordained minister, you had to go through so many years of study. There was right. so much. Ministers who delivered a single sermon would put hours or even a day into doing so. This was very serious activity. So yeah. if these guys believed it, then it just trickled down and everybody else Absolutely. believed it. Absolutely. Because you also have to, to you know, put it in its historic context. It's not been so very long that we've even had the Bible in the common man's langu language in English. Right. Right. So, I mean, just in the, in the century prior to this, we have uh, royalty and, and uh, authorities of the church literally hunting people down. People can be you know, tortured and murdered for simply saying the Lord's Prayer in English, like seemingly the most Christian, right? Yeah. Loving thing to do. Yeah. And you could be persecuted for it because you are speaking um, from the Bible in, in a language other than the Roman Catholic Right. So, yeah, Latin, right? Yeah. Isn't that just amazing? It's incredible. And it's and incredible. so that that also helped me understand the Puritans a little bit better. It's like this this sort of you know fervor, this 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 fierce loyalty to it. They're appreciating this sense of we've received a gift. You have this in your own language. You don't need you know an authority of the church to stand between you and your relationship with God, with your Creator. You're expected to to cultivate that relationship for yourself. Come to your, your you right. know, religious leader for guidance, but I mean, you're expected to make those connections and to question those connections and make sure you aren't being deceived yeah. because it gets tricky. You know? But I, I think that's just, that's fascinating. And so yes, they're not in a position where they're reinterpreting the Bible. They're not saying, oh, here's what I think God means about this or this or yeah. this. If it says how to respond to witchcraft, what a witchcraft, what a witch is, then these are things that we don't question just as of yet. Right, right. We believe them. Let's, let's transition here real quick because sure. I, I do want to get to the magistrate side of things. I want to mm. talk a little bit more about Judge Corwin and the kind of magistrate side of things. So first of all, when, when people come to Judge Corwin's house here, what's the most popular question you get asked? Um, truthfully, it's more about uh, Giles Corey and okay. what's pressed to death and, right, and, and, <laughs> What was wrong with the girls? That's what we get sure, more that's, often than anything. How did this happen? What was yeah, wrong with the girls? Yeah. yeah. What was wrong with the girls? Was it ergot? Which, sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's been that's been very popular. But what I'll, what I will tell you is sort of the the best takeaway that I try to give people if they're trying to understand Corwin and his contemporaries and their mindset. You know, by and large, <clears throat> and I've I've you know done a transition in my views on him. You know, it's, it's sort of difficult to interpret a museum in a home of a man who's involved in the way that he is with right. such a very dark history. I have a, a love and, and a respect and affinity for, for the home. And so for at first, when I was trying to learn about everything, I, I separated the two so that I could love the structure, care for the structure, and then try to understand him and his role a little bit better. And over the years, I've come to sort of a, a comfortable place with it. Um, I've searched everything that he ever wrote, that any Corwin ever set to paper, okay. trying to get some insight. Did he ever talk about you know, his involvement? Did he ever talk about how he felt? And he hadn't, unfortunately. Okay. He's all business. He just, sure. <laughs> right, you know, keeping, keeping records and whatnot. But I do learn a few things, or did learn a few, a few things on the way. Um, we find that his mother-in-law is accused of witchcraft as she comes under suspicion. So that's his wife's mother during Jenna this Boston. time period or yes it, okay. yes right at the onset so much so that you know we find instructions for 
the maid who is accusing his mother-in-law to be transported separately from Tituba. So that, you know, there's very much um, using privilege, using influence sure. to keep her out of the fray a bit. And he, and he manages to. She never officially um, is accused. She's never arrested. But it's murmured about so much so that others are saying, well, why aren't we seeing your mother-in-law right. here? You know, so he's a man that if you understand this time frame, if a woman is accused, then they will also seek her family members. They will especially look to her female family members, her daughters, her granddaughters. So for his mother-in-law to be accused, he could not have not realized that you know he was under threat, his family was under threat as well. What I, what I sort of try and impart to those who are confused about you know who he was and his role and was he a bad man was you know that the sort of thing and I absolutely understand trying to place him and trying to understand him um, as you walk through the homes that he lived in with his family and what I find is this though I don't have his own words I don't have his own perspective sadly I have Sewell's and I have others who are communicating to each other about it and by and large what we have is we have men of authority responding to a community threat as real to them then yeah. as, say, terrorism would be to you and I today. So it sounds outrageous, but they give as much validity to witches as we do to these acts of terrorism. So their first response isn't, I don't know if I believe in it or I don't know how true this might be. They respond to it as if it's a given. Right. And, a, and such a, a threat as it must be dealt with quickly before it spreads, before their apathy is perceived by God as, uh, as a strike. Yeah, right. because anything and, and could be... And that he yeah. visits more you know, uh, misfortune upon them. They, they feel that they are their brother's keeper. If you have 12 households living in a community and 11 of those are God-fearing and, and attending Sabbath and doing everything by the by the book and one family is not and those 11 let that family languish God holds all 12 accountable so that's really sort of that mindset is like all right we need to all of us pull together and and do right by God and find out why he's visiting this fortune upon us so that we can make sure this community thrives the way it's supposed to so these men are responding and and behaving with a sense of they have uh, a responsibility to those who have complained. And right. I know that sounds outrageous because we're talking about witchcraft, but yeah. for the, the individual who would have heard about the Philosopher's Stone and studied alchem alchemical philosophies at Harvard, who um, believes in the doctrine of effluvia as, a, as drawn out by um, Rene Descartes, who's considered the father of modern philosophy, that gives validity to the magic that's going on and so they they set all of that aside and simply try and find the source of it they make huge mistakes in the process and they act in ways that are unforgivable but I think at the heart of it most of them felt they were doing the right thing you see deviations in that you see monsters Stoughton the sheriff right, his, his nephew here terrifying people Hawthorne if you look at his uh, communications with Tituba, he's far too in earnest, he's far too enthusiastic, and that's, that's terrifying. So they, they commit egregious um, acts against the community in their fervor, um, but I think at the, at the start of it, at the onset, they are 
they are responding to what they feel is a real threat, and it's their responsibility to. Right. And that they honestly would feel that the community would hold them accountable for. You know, if someone made a report to Corwin and he didn't take it seriously, that person is going to feel that they've been slighted and not been dealt with correctly, and they will seek to, you know, to find an, an alternate authority to report it to. So sure, there's sure. a sense of, you know, of that obligation in his office. Does that help a little? It does. Okay. It does. <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. I very much appreciate it. We know that you guys have a lot of work to do. Things have to get opened up and everyone has to come and see the house. So thank you very much. We appreciate our time at the Witch House here. I encourage everyone who is interested in this, please stop by and see this house is fantastic. And we'll see you down the road. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Infamous America Season 1, Salem. We hope you join us soon for Season 2, where we'll dive into our first story of the gangsters of the 1930s with Public Enemies, Volume 1, Pretty Boy Floyd. As always, if you enjoyed the show, please give it a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. You can find us at our website, blackbarrelmedia.com, or on social media. Our Facebook page is blackbarrelmedia. Our Twitter handle is at bbarrelmedia, and our Instagram handle is at blackbarrelmedia. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.